You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Outdoor Edge. Now, Outdoor Edge is a knife company. We all know that. They offer a complete line of fixed blade knives, replaceable blade knives, and game processing kits, right? So any blade you need to break down an animal, these guys have it. Now, the cool thing about their replaceable blades is let's say you are in the middle of breaking down an animal and the blade goes dull. The only thing you have to do is push a button the blade pops out, you put a new blade in, it locks in tight, and you're back to breaking down that animal. You get it cooled down, you get it back to the truck faster, and you get more meat in the long run. So if you want to find out more information about all the blades, fixed, replaceable, and game processing kits that Outdoor Edge makes, visit their website outdooredge.com and if you want to save 30% on your purchase enter the discount code nation30 that's n-a-t-i-o-n 30 and that's outdooredge.com on today's episode of the podcast we're going to talk about clothing and not necessarily clothing from just kind of a layering philosophy perspective. Uh, I've done some episodes on that in the past, but in this episode, I'm going to go into more detail on specific garments, uh, ones that have been sort of new to me this year, things that I haven't really talked about or reviewed much on the podcast before or on my YouTube channel yet, and just give you guys my thoughts. So the ones I'm going to talk about specifically in this episode from a base layer perspective would be the L1 and H1 base layers from uh, Thleet Camo Company. And those are both synthetic base layers. One's a lightweight, one's a heavyweight. So I'll kind of compare and contrast between synthetics and merino wool. And then we'll go into the lightweight layers. I've been using both the Scentlock Savannah as well as the Fleet Zodiac Pant and Fall Jacket combination. They're both, you know, I guess early season based, but they're very different in terms of how they're constructed. And so there's definitely some pros and cons one way or the other. And then from a midweight perspective, Really, the only thing that I have to touch on here is the Fleet Phantom 2.0 versus the 1.0. The 2.0 was new for this year, whereas the 1.0 is what they've had kind of pre-existing. And then from a heavyweight perspective, we'll talk about the IWAM, which is, you know, kind of similar to other suits like the warm bag or the heater body suit, where they have really strong followings for some of the guys that, that use them a lot and really like them a lot. So... I've played around with using one of those out of a saddle. Obviously, they work well. I have a tree stand, but I'll talk about things I like and don't like and just how feasible it would be if you did want to hunt with one of those out of a saddle. And then Sitka has their new incinerator bibs that have an upgraded insulation package. I'll talk about those. The other ones would be the Fleet North Star Jacket, which is, it could be, it's more of like an insulation piece. Uh, You could use it as an external layer, so I'll touch on that one as well. And then I'll do a little uh, brief overview on the boots as well. The gum leaf uh, rubber boots I got this year. And so I put on quite a few miles on those various terrains and be able to give some thoughts as well as the hiking boots that I bought this year, the Loa Zephyr GTX high TF, uh, which is a high top lace up hiking boot. I got them to replace my Keens last year that started falling apart that one of the scenes, the seams started to come loose. I needed a new pair of hiking boots, decided to go with a high top and went with those. So we'll start with base layers first. 
in the past, I've worn quite a bit of base layers that were merino wool based, uh, either from First Light, from Cabela's that were actually Icebreaker branded as Cabela's, from minus 33. And I really haven't found a like brand of merino wool that I really didn't like. I think just about everything that I've tried, you know, the minus 33 has been good. Uh, the Icebreaker stuff's been good. The First Light stuff has been good. And First Light now has, you know, kind of their blends of merino combined with nylon to make a hybrid. I've used some alpaca base layers from Fleet, which are actually, I think, 70% alpaca fiber or 30% merino. And really the whole thought process behind merino, number one, it, it does a really good job at not smelling, especially after several days of use. That's one of the main advantages that's constantly touted about it. Uh, but then on the the other front, it tends to do a pretty good job at keeping you warm when wet, uh, insulating when cool, as well as kind of cooling you off when warm. So that's a good solid temperature range. But of course, there's two downsides to merino wool base layers also, which is number one, if you get it wet, it does take a long time to dry. So even if it does kind of insulate when you're wet, the flip side of that is it's going to be wet longer, whereas synthetics are going to dry out a little bit quicker. And on the smell side of things, the synthetics are not going to be as good as Merino in terms of how many days you can wear them consecutively. But most of these good synthetics from, you know, pick your brand are going to have some kind of a silver antimicrobial treatment in the fibers. And that does do, you know, quite a bit better than cotton or just untreated synthetics in general, like way better than the old Under Armour that you wore, you know, playing football. So I definitely think there's some advantages to synthetics, especially if you're in types of environments where you may sweat and you may just want that thing to be able to dry out really quickly. Uh, if you're going to be washing your, your clothes a little bit more frequently, I think there's definitely some places where synthetics do shine. One of the places where they also do a little bit better than Merino is oftentimes if you have a loftier synthetic, you can get a better warmth to weight ratio with a synthetic than you would with wool. So then specifically with these base layers that I've been trying out from Fleet, one of them is the L1, which is their lightweight. One is the H1, which is their heavyweight. The thing I like about Fleet, at least one of them, is that they tend to be pretty transparent about what fabrics they're actually using, where their textiles came from. And the L1 is a PolarTech power dry, uh, kind of a lightweight, like 120 or 130 gram per square meter. Whereas the H1 is also a PolarTech fabric. It's a power stretch, which is a polyester synthetic blend, I believe. And that one is like a 300 something weight. It's a, it's a very beefy weight, but it's got more of a, I guess the finish of the material is different on the inside compared to the outside. So you get that nice kind of fuzzy finish against your skin. And then on the outside, it's a little bit more tightly knit. And so that'll help draw the moisture away from your body, push it more to the outside, uh, where you can get that better moisture management and you do, if you you know really push it, you will get more sweat buildup in that layer and it'll take a little bit longer to dry out than the L1 would, but you're typically wearing it in more cool weather when you're not as likely to sweat anyway. So I've used both of these kind of interchangeably. It seems like for me, the, I'd probably get more use out of the H series, the heavyweight than the lightweight, just from the standpoint that a lot of times early season, I don't wear a base layer all that much, or if I am wearing a base layer, it might be my main actual upper layer. And if that's the case, then I'm going with something that's already camouflaged, something like the Sitka Core Lightweight hoodie or something like the 
Athlete AS1 hoodie, both of which are stretch knit, nice camouflaged full feature with like the, you know, drop down face mask and the, the hood and then once uh, it starts getting pockets, cold enough where I don't in there. need that type of layer, I need to start adding more, then I might just start jumping all the way to uh, something like that uh, more heavyweight base layer and then put a lighter jacket over the top. So it seems like there's just less, at least for me, less use range for a lightweight base layer compared to the heavyweight one. But when I have used the lightweight one, it has done a really good job, number one, at drying quickly. It's super comfortable. I can wear it for multiple days in a row without it sweating. Again, I can't push it as far as I could with something like a Merino garment, but you know, for a lot of these treated synthetics, they all do a pretty good job. I would say that compared to Merino, even though Merino is pretty comfortable uh, with these finer fibers that they're making a lot of these with, I still don't think it quite matches the next to skin comfort that some of these synthetics offer. Like the H1 is like, it's like a, it's like a soft, you know, buttery fleece blanket pressed against your skin. It's just really comfortable. It's like you could wear it as loungewear, uh, sitting watching the football game. It's just really comfortable stuff. So ultimately I think these types of situations are going to come down to personal preference. You know, do you want something you can wear for a week on end without having much of any odor at all? Well, then maybe Reno is your, your thing. If you want something that's going to be able to dry much quicker because you might not have access to, you know, a laundry machine, or you know you're going to be you know very active going through scenarios where you might actually be sweating more and you might want that moisture to drive through and start to evaporate out a little bit quicker well then maybe synthetics are going to be the way to go synthetics typically are a little bit less expensive than merino and in addition they tend to be a little bit more durable like i said i've worn both and i like both they each have their own pros and cons but i think if you wanted to choose one or the other use whichever one makes more sense based on those criteria size wise it does seem like the h1 from fleet runs a little bit large to where i can i can pretty much fit as like a six foot 200 pounder in the mediums whereas most layers i tend to be a large and so i'd say you could definitely size down a little bit with the current sizing there however with the l1s they seem to be fitting more size on next we'll jump into the lightweight outerwear so on one side, we have the Scentlock Savannah kit, and on the other side, we have the Fleet kit, which is a their fall jacket, which is kind of like a, a hoodie-style uh, jacket. It's got a half zip. It's got a kangaroo pocket. It's got a hood with a face mask that pulls up, but it doesn't have like a zipper drop-in pocket. It doesn't have a full zipper. Uh, it does have cuffs that you can cinch down with the Velcro to get nice and tight around your wrist. Whereas the Sentinel Savannah is more of kind of like a standard jacket and pants. Uh, the pants have little uh, features in them where you can go ahead and without a belt, pre-tighten them, so to speak. So you can, you know, take these little buckles and straps, tighten them up a little bit. Uh, just so that if you don't happen to have a belt or you don't want to use one, whatever, you can get a little bit of extra tightening just out of that built-in system. It's not quite as I guess versatile as about would be, but it's, it's something that's there. The face fabric on the scent lock is definitely softer. It's not like a deep nap fleece for anything like that, but it's, it's more of a brushed finish, right? So it's nice and soft. Doesn't make any noise. It's really quiet. So from that aspect, it's good for bow hunting. However, 
it does seem like it's less necessary to have ultra quiet gear in early season as compared to late season. The fleet, on the other hand, they have a different sort of, I guess, surface feel to them. Uh, it's more of a snag proof material. Uh, it does better in areas where you're going to be walking through burrs. Any burrs you do pick up, you can just pretty well brush them off with your hand. Uh, I've gone through thorns and they hold up really well to that sort of thing. Whereas in contrast, the, the scent lock, when I've gone through those same type of areas, I've got some spots on the pants, especially where, you know, they're starting to wear through. Like I, I would feel like by the end of the season, I wouldn't be surprised if I start to get a hole or two. And it's totally just a, a result of some of the areas that I'm walking through. I mean, there's times when I'm walking through, you know, a 12 month old clear cut and there's just thorns that have grown up and you know, it's not representative of what a lot of guys necessarily would have to go through. So just keep that in mind. I think the fleet version is a lot better for durability just from the fabric choices that they use, but it's not going to be quite as whisper quiet as the, uh, the satellite would be in terms of the layouts. Uh, I th think that the, the pocket layout of the scent lock pants are, are fine. I think that the jacket layout with the various pockets, there are fine too. I really don't have any issues whatsoever with the way that those garments are laid out. Usually with the scent lock, I might be wearing something like a, a nice lightweight, you know, Merino or synthetic shirt underneath, uh, might be using something like the, the L one, uh, upper layer from fleet might be using just like a literally like a t-shirt underneath but i think ultimately what a lot of guys who are going to be more gravitating towards the scent lock are also going to be talking about the the actual scent control uh, aspects of it and that's something that i'm hoping to gather enough information to be able to eventually do a video and i'm not going to post a video until i have enough data to where i feel like it's actually going to be value added not just me kind of you know giving my opinions on the matter but what I'm doing this year on certain hunts where it makes sense to do so is I'm basically going full out on the scent control side of things and just basically observing and taking notes of what's happening. Are there deer that react or that don't react? Uh, and basically I'm, I've been talking with John Eberhardt and making sure that I'm doing everything kind of by the book on those hunts so that I know that whatever data I get, is to the best of my abilities and I'll give it a fair shake, open mind and just see kind of where the results lay. So part of the scent lock portion of this is geared towards that. And so hopefully that'll help give eventually people some thoughts or extra opinions on just, you know, how well does that uh, type of thing work. But on other hunts, I'm just going to be totally playing the wind and thermals like usual, using my milkweed, making smart decisions and using whatever clothes I want. And just not worrying about the, the extra added, you know, hassle of making sure that scent control is done right. So if you're interested in the scent control thing, then obviously, you know, scent lock is one of the only brands that has that activated carbon in it. But I do really wish that they had an offering for early season. That was more of a brush buster style of pant that had a little bit more durable surface finish. I don't need it to be brushed. I don't need it to be ultra quiet. I just need it to hold up the thorns and briars and, you know, things that I might walk through that are just a little bit more rough and abrasive on pants. Uh, and I feel like the, the fleet really fits the bill there uh, compared to other things that I've wore. I had a pair of Cabela's pants a while back that were these stocking pants and they were kind of like a stretch nylon, but they had these big panels on the front 
that were, I guess, Kevlar nylon, and they held up really well to those types of things also. It was basically what it was designed for. Uh, when I wear my boots that are the, the tingly boots that have those big chaps kind of sewn onto them, those are like a 400 denier nylon. Those hold up really well to these extra, you know, abrasive surfaces. Uh, so there's, there's definitely things out there that do the job pretty well. And what I'd compare the scent lock more to would be like my apex pants from Sitka. Now those pants are what I wore in Nebraska and they're designed, like if you were to read their website description, they're going to say they're designed for like stocking. They're made to be really quiet and kind of soft and supple. They're very comfortable to wear. They have like a textured finish to the inside and that helps kind of, you know, wick a little bit of moisture away from your skin. But those pants, especially out in Nebraska, they had these little sand birds that were just, they look like little sea urchins and they're sharp when you, you can't just brush them off with your hand. Cause it, I mean, it just, it pokes you pretty bad. And every day that we were out there, uh, I would have to pick off, you know, 20, 30, those things from those pants. And eventually we got to the point where I would just you know, take a stick and, and do it and just doing every effort possible to make sure I wasn't stepping through those plants. And the scent lock would have been basically right in that same boat, just kind of how that material that, you know, softer polyester finish will pick up those types of things. You know, it was like the sandburrs in that instance, but even back at home, uh, I'll walk through, you know, a 12 month old clear cut and those pants will just be stiff on the way out from all the burrs that it picks up. And then it takes me half hour to go ahead and get all those burrs off. And then if you were following the scent lock thing, then you'd have to, once you did that, you know, you got your scent all over it, put it back in the dryer, re regenerate the carbon and then put it back in your tote. So it was a little bit of extra work, um, kind of a hassle, certainly from that aspect, just because of the, the locations that I'm, I'm hunting and what I have to walk through. The Thalit pants though, have been holding up well, which is no surprise. The Phantom pants that I had worn for a couple of years also hold up really well to abrasion. Uh, I think the owner takes a lot of, I guess, priority or precedence on having a really snag proof fabric, uh, specked out. So again, that, that works really well for walking through some of those more burr rich or thorn rich areas. Not to say that it couldn't go ahead and, you know, get a big tear in it, but it just seems much less likely. And on the jacket side of things, I like the layout. I don't mind having to put on a jacket over the top of my head as if it were a sweatshirt, as opposed to having a full zip. I like kangaroo pockets. I like the kangaroo pocket on my Sika Fanatic jacket. I also like it a bit on this the fall jacket from Fleet. I wasn't sure that I was really going to like that jacket a whole ton just from the standpoint that a lot of times I'm wearing just kind of a softer base layer and then I might be wearing more of like a pullover fleece hoodie for that more mid-weight type of a garment. Something like the pullover that I've worn in my scouting videos from Huntworth, which is a pretty good value. Uh, people have asked me about that. It's a much less expensive, but also a pretty viable alternative to the Apex hoodie or something similar to that from Sitka. So I have been a fan of that piece, but once again, that fall jacket from Fleet is less on the, the polyester kind of softer, quieter fabric and more on the snag proof, more durable side of things. So if you were to like you know, brush your fingers up against that fabric of that jacket. It's not going to be as whisper quiet, but again, in the early season, it doesn't seem like it matters as much. 
it's not like I've ever once had fear that the, the clothing was too loud. One thing I would say is that because that particular jacket has a hood that also has a face mask that comes up, when I'm wearing that with a base layer that also has a hood and a face mask that comes up, it's like too many hoods and too many face masks. Uh, so if I know I'm going to be wearing that jacket, then I'll, I'm more likely to wear a base layer underneath that's just like a t-shirt or a long sleeve or a quarter zip, something that doesn't have its own hood. Uh, whereas if it's really hot, then I'll just wear that base layer all by itself. So that was one kind of consideration that I learned uh, through experience that there's, you definitely want to, you know, kind of choose, pick and choose. So you only have one hood and one face mask if possible. And for both of those lightweight sets, the one from Scentlock as well as the one from Fleet, I'm a size large for both the top and bottoms. Again, six foot, about 200 pounds. And the fit on both of those is pretty good. Now we'll jump into some of the midweight layers. And for these, I also have two brands that I'll kind of review. One is the Phantom 2.0 from Fleet. And I just have the pants for those, not the jacket. And then from Scentlock, the Windbrace, both top and bottoms. First, I'll talk about the Fleet pants. The Phantom 2.0 is similar to the Phantom, what is called the 1.0 now, which originally was just called the Phantom. And I had worn those original Phantom pants for several years, warm scouting, warm hunting, basically any time that it wasn't super hot out, like summer scouting or turkey hunting, I was wearing those pants and they still to this day have held up pretty well. But there are, I guess, slight differences between the 2.0 and the original design. The most key difference is that the Phantom 2.0 is fully windproof. It's got a laminate in it that absolutely that's in zero wind. Whereas the original Phantom pants were a highly wind resistant uh, material. There was a soft shell, but still had some uh, level of, I guess, air permeability. So if you were to do the breath test and put that fabric up to your face and just kind of blow through it, with the Phantom 2.0 pants, it feels like you're blown into a sheet of rubber. Like you just can't push any air through. Whereas with the Phantom Originals, uh, you can get a little bit of that breath to push through and feel it on the other side. And usually it wasn't too big of a deal. If you had like a 20 mile, hour, mile per hour wind, you would get cold a little bit sooner. Uh, but that's not an issue with the 2.0s. The drawback is that the material is definitely a little bit louder on the Phantom 2.0s compared to the 1.0. And so that just... You know, it's a trade-off. Do you prioritize, you know, ultimate silence in clothing? Or would you rather just have, you know, totally windproof and not have being cold become an issue? When I had these things out the last time we were in North Dakota hunting, and it was just a hair over freezing. It was probably 33 degrees, but like a 15-mile-an-hour wind where we, we were set up in a big uh, bur oak. The, the leaves are already off the trees at this point. And just wearing the lightweight base layer in those pants through that morning sit, I mean, I was pretty comfortable. Uh, I just had the, on the upper side, the H1 top, the fall jacket, and a windproof Mad Trapper vest. And then the, the bottoms, I had the Phantom 2.0 pants and the L1 base layers. And just wore the sick incinerator hat and no gloves. And just wearing that system, I was pretty comfortable. Um, if I would have sat there by till like noon, then maybe I would have gotten cold just from number of hours of exposure in those conditions. But for the, you know, two, three hours that we sat in the morning, it was totally fine. Like the original Phantom pants, the pants on the sides have like hip vents 
So if you have a zipper that starts up by your hip and you can drop it down, you know, kind of close to your knee and there's mesh behind it. So nothing's going to fall into the pants if you open up those zippers, but it does help you vent a lot of heat, which becomes even more important on the 2.0s compared to the originals because those laminates do not breathe as well. You know, there's no air permeability. You can get some level of moisture permeability, but it's still very low. And so when you're scouting or you're just walking quick and you're starting to feel yourself heating up a little bit, but you don't want to slow down because you're running behind, you, you know, didn't get up early enough. You're running out of time to get to the stand, whatever you can unzip those. And it does definitely make a difference. You can feel it almost immediately. If you're warm, that heat will start to dump out those vents and it can allow you to actually move a little bit quicker than you'd otherwise be able to and do it without generating too much heat and sweating. So I love that on the originals. I like that they kept it on the 2.0s. Really the only, I guess, downside I would say on the 2.0s is just a little bit of extra noise with having that laminate in there on that fabric. But if it's windy, I, I guess personally prioritize, and this is just, you know, regardless of brand, prioritize a good windproof layer to keep me from getting cold over ultimate stealth. Usually when it's windy, noise doesn't matter that much anyway because you got extra noise from just the ambient sounds you know the wind blowing through the trees the leaves blowing around all that good stuff the other midweight layers that i've been getting some experience with is the wind brace set from scentlock now this one isn't one of their i guess flagship midweight layering systems that might be like the voyage or the forefront or something like that uh, but the wind brace is is kind of nice because it's less expensive. It's got a non-breathable polyurethane membrane for both the jacket and the pants. And it's got fleece on the inside, fleece on the outside. And then it's got that activated carbon lining on the inside of the membrane. And so because of that non-breathable membrane, even more so than the fleet pants, I really, I don't want to wear those walking in for any large amount of distance or any, you know, good amount of speed, any kind of heat generation is not going to be super great, especially with the jacket, but with the pants also, there's no vents to help let that heat escape. There's no zippers on the legs to allow heat to kind of vent out your ankle area. And so here's my biggest complaint about the pants is that they're ideally not a layer that I really want to wear walking into the woods, but they're also not a layer that I really want to pack in because they're really hard to put on over the top of boots because they don't have zippers that are either full length or even partial length. There's no, there's no zippers on the ankles. That makes getting them on over boots somewhat challenging. However, if I wear them right from the truck, then I'm much more likely to overheat a little bit more quickly than I would with other pants. So that's just kind of the, I guess, trade-off that you have to play with those pants specifically. However, the jacket I am much more fond of. It's just a nice, simple layering piece. The size large is built to, I guess, layer under. So when I put that large jacket on, I, I definitely have room to put a pretty sizable amount of insulation underneath. I can fit one of the other pieces I'll talk about in a little bit, the North Star jacket from Fleet underneath. And that's a pretty good system. I could wear that over bibs. I could wear that over pants. There's a you know, few different pockets on the jacket there. And there's no hood on the jacket, which I think is kind of nice. I've kind of grown to not, not really like hoods on, especially wind blocking hoods. 
they're really nice if it's super windy, but they just cut down so much on hearing for me. Uh, and as well, they seem to always tend to cut down a little bit on visibility. Even if you have a good hood design that you can kind of cinch down away and give you a little bit of extra uh, visibility on your peripheral vision, I'd much rather get a lot of that with either the combination of a hat uh, and or a neck gaiter or a face mask as opposed to a hood. So I do like that aspect of the jacket. Again, if you're into the, the scent control side of things, then you're kind of getting double duty with the wind brace because number one, you got that activated carbon underneath the membrane. Number two, the membrane itself is not very air permeable. So nothing would be able to kind of move from your body outward anyways. The only thing you got to, I guess, be aware of would be air coming out your cuffs uh, on, on both the pants and the, the jacket side of things. So I definitely wouldn't overlook, especially the jacket, if you're looking for something and you're really trying to, to do the scent control game. On the pants, if you're not walking in too far, it's an awesome option. If you can basically figure out a way to make that work for your system to where you're not overheating when you're walking in wearing those pants, uh, that'd be great. The other thing is because they're fleece, they're going to be burr magnets. So just keep that in mind. They are more inexpensive, especially when they're on clearance, which I think they are now. They're like 70 bucks or something like that for the pants online. So it's a pretty reasonable option to get a nice wind blocking layer as an external piece that's fleece. It's, I guess, somewhat quiet. The membrane itself is pretty crinkly as far as other comparable things go. It's, I would say, noisier from a crinkle perspective than the uh, either the Sitka with Uchiji Gore-Tex or the Fleet membranes. They're just kind of in my experience, you know, handling them. Uh, but again, if it's windy, I'd much rather have the windproofing than ultimate silence. Uh, and I guess the you know, comparison piece I throw in there would be the Sika Fanatic, which is ultra quiet. And they get that because they have a whole bunch of Berber fleece on the outside of that wind membrane. And the downside there is that because they've added so much fleece on the outside of that membrane, yeah, it's quiet, but it really doesn't do as well as in precipitation. It soaks up water a little bit more, uh, snow packs into it. Doesn't do as well with freezing rain, sleet, uh, compared to something that just has more of a softer, smaller, thinner brushed face over top of that membrane. So that's one of the big trade-offs that you have there. Now let's move on to the heavyweight stuff. I'll talk about the jacket that's kind of an insulating heavyweight piece, which is the North Star jacket first. That one, similar to Sitka, which I'll talk about right afterwards, they use the same insulation. It's a newer insulation that's been used in a couple of garments in the outdoor space. Uh, it's from Primaloft. It's their gold series insulation, but it's a, I guess, upgraded version of the Primaloft gold. They call it cross core. They take the Primaloft gold, which is kind of their, I guess, top shelf, best warmth uh, per weight insulation that Primaloft makes, which is a higher end insulation than even what they put in their Fnatic, which is, I think, like a Primaloft silver. But then they have, I guess, added aerogel particles to the physical structure of that insulation so that gives it a little bit more of an insulating property it makes it do a little bit better under compression aerogel in and of itself if you were to have it as like just a solid layer you can look up online on you know youtube and see videos of these various tests where people do some pretty crazy things with actual just aerogel sheets 
where they're able to like light a flame underneath it and have their hand right on top and basically not, uh, not get burned. Same thing with ultra cold stuff, liquid nitrogen, all that good stuff. So it's pretty remarkable item and it really does well in the warmth per thickness side of things. Uh, but in this installation specifically, what they do is they, you know, make it really small particulate and then they put that into the, the insulation itself, which is more of a loftier insulation. So those two things in combination on paper, the, you know, warmth for weight is, is really, I think the best out of any synthetic insulation and really comparable to a lot of the lower to mid tier, you know, down, which is pretty remarkable. And it's going to do better than down in both compression resistance as well as actual warmth when wet. The things you want to watch out for is, you know, how is that garment constructed? You can have a really good insulation, but if you have a ton of sewn through baffles, then each of those little quilting places are going to be areas where you have no insulation, wherever it's sewn through. And if you have a whole bunch of that in a garment, it might look cool, might look trendy, but it's going to allow more heat to escape through those sewn through lines. And if you just had like a continuous insulation, for instance. So one thing you can use to combat that is when you have an insulating piece, like a down jacket or like a synthetic jacket that just has a lot of sewing in it, you can wear a wind shirt over the top, which is like basically any windproof garment. And you're going to be able to get a lot of that insulating property. It's a pretty commonly known thing I would say in the outdoor space, but less so in the hunting industry. And for that reason, on the North Star jacket, I think ideally you would still wear some type of a wind blocking layer over the top, even though the material that makes up its shell is pretty wind resistant in and of itself. You can do a, the breath test on it and it takes quite a bit of effort to actually push air through and into that insulation. Uh, but it's still on a really windy day, it would be better to have some additional wind shirt or wind blocking layer over the top. In addition, that extra wind layer over the top is going to you know, kind of neutralize any kind of sewn through baffle effect that you would have from uh, the construction of that jacket. Now, compare that to something like the Sika incinerator, which uses the same insulation from Primaloft, but that one also has the Gore-Tex layer and the brushed polyester surface finish on top of the Gore-Tex. So from a comparison standpoint, the Sika incinerator is going to be a lot heavier. It's not going to pack down as tight but it's going to have that built-in wind protection already there. Uh, whereas for the fleet, you got that nice packable, I guess we'll call it ultralight insulation piece. Um, but if you're going to use it on a really windy day, it's going to be nice to have an extra layer over the top of it. Construction on the North Star is very good. The pockets are a nice touch. I like that it doesn't have a hood. I, I think in a lot of ways, it's a big step up from their old tailwind puffy jacket was which is kind of like a more like a standard puffy style of jacket i think i like the layout of this newer one quite a bit better especially if i'm going to be using either a hood on my external jacket or if i'm not going to wear a hood at all and just be using a more normal i guess hat and neck gaiter or face mask uh, because the fabrics on puffy jackets when it comes to hoods it just seems like they're always kind of, they bunch up in a way that just makes it kind of crinkly. And I don't like how I can always hear that when I'm moving my head left and right. I like the fact that it just does not have that hood to mess around with. My only real gripe on that insulation piece is just that 
from a sizing perspective, I feel like the length could probably be, you know, maybe two inches longer in the waist. It's fine as is, but it's just maybe a touch on the short end. Um, but that's really the only downside I have. The sleeves have nice internal cuffs that have thumb holes in them. So if you want to layer something over the top, it's really easy to use. Uh, they don't come in the camo patterns right now. It's just either gray or uh, green. And I haven't really talked, I guess, about camo patterns overall here quite a bit for anything. It's because I think in general for me, when I try to look at clothing like this, I try to treat it on the, uh, the merits of the clothing itself and what it's best used for. And then, you know, people can choose whatever camo or solid pattern that they want. Now, the new Sika incinerator, I was curious if they were going to change anything additional because the last time that they came out with the incinerator update was 2015. So it's been six years now since they've had a new incinerator. And there's some things that I really liked about the layout of the Fanatic. I wasn't a huge fan of the extra Berber, but I really liked that diagonal pocket. I really love the built-in kangaroo muff. I like the fact that it, you know, came standard without a hood, but on the new incinerator on the jacket side anyway, and I guess the pants too, they really didn't change much on the actual design. What they changed was the insulation package. And so they went from what was, I guess, kind of a, a hybrid insulation, a, a down Primaloff silver blend to this, you know, new Primaloff gold with aerogel, the cross core insulation. And so according to Sika, it's more warmth and less weight. So that's really what you're getting kind of with the new system versus the old. Uh, the old is still great. I mean, you can find a discounter for, I guess, probably a couple hundred dollars less than you would pay normal retail. So if you can still get your hands on one of those, that's still a pretty good buy. The thing I really like about the bibs, and this is totally, I think, an unintentional thing on Sika's part, but if you're going to wear it saddle hunting, you can actually wear the bibs over top of the saddle because there are two pockets right around the hip area that are in just about the perfect spot for a bridge to poke out. So if you have a detachable bridge and you're wearing a saddle, you can put on the saddle first, then you can put on the bibs over top and run your bridge out through one pocket hole into the other one and close that connection point again. And then you can climb the tree. And then once you're all set up, basically zip everything down, put your jacket on over the top, and then you're not compressing any insulation. So you don't have, I guess, wasted insulation from that standpoint, because if you compress it, it's not being able to function as well. The other aspect is you're kind of getting more of a, you know, an underquilt type of an effect. If you look into hammock camping, there's, you know, how do you stay warm in a hammock? Well, if you have a sleeping bag inside the hammock, you're compressing all that insulation underneath you and then you have to wear a pad. But what a lot of people do is they have these under quilts and top quilts and they put those actually outside of the, the hammock on the bottom. And so, that way you're not compressing the insulation at all. And it's like, you're just tucked into that little cocoon of warmth. And a lot of the systems like the heater bodysuit or the IWAM warm bag, they're kind of operating under the same sort of principle where they're trying to keep all that insulation away from you and just have, you know, one central pocket of air that you're trying to keep warm as one unit, as opposed to keeping everything segregated off. So I personally think that this is preferable to wearing a saddle over the top of insulation when it gets really cold. Really my only downside when it comes to the Sika incinerator bibs is the price. I mean, they are, they are really expensive. I think $650, which for a pair of bibs, a lot of guys are just going to think is absolutely insane. So I'll say once again, if you shop around, 
if you're willing to buy the old model, you can get these things for probably less than 400, which is still a lot of money. And it's probably comparable to, you know, the Sandlock Fortress or the MT50 from Cabela's or a lot of other brands. Uh, but it really is, I think, probably the best technical hunting bibs uh, because, again, you got that waterproof, windproof laminate. You got the brush finish. You got good pocket layout, really good insulation. I mean, it's just, I like it in so many ways where I would say if, like, if you're going to be implementing a buy once, cry once type of mentality, that particular garment would be one that I would not have any issues recommending a guy to, to go ahead and purchase. And so let's talk about something that actually is a little bit less expensive overall when you factor everything in, which is the IWAM. So I got an IWAM XT earlier this summer and I really wanted to see is it feasible to actually use it out of a saddle? I know that people have modified heater body suits to be able to wear them with a saddle and Average Jack's Archery uh, YouTube channel, which is uh, Nate Sellers, I've had him on the podcast before. He did a video last fall, or I guess last winter, where he actually showed that you could, in fact, without any modifications whatsoever, use the IWAM with a saddle. You put on the saddle first, and then you're able to climb with the IWAM in kind of what they call parker mode, get all set up, run the bridge in and out of two pass-through pockets that are located on the side of the actual IWAM, and then you can lower the thing down, close up the panel around your feet, so you're totally enclosed in that little cocoon, and it works. So what I wanted to figure out is, is that optimal? Is this something that could potentially replace a more traditional bib and parka for me? And I think in some ways, Yes, although I would say it's not optimal. If you're going to hunt out of a tree stand or you're hunting off the ground, I think it's a pretty solid option. Like you're talking about $450 or so, but it's replacing bibs, jacket, face mask, hood, hand muff, and Arctic Shield boot blankets. Like it just it covers your entire body. The only thing you'd probably want to have is just a lightweight pair of extra gloves. And then when you walk into the woods, you can just wear whatever makes the most sense for you to walk in with, put that thing on over the top. And I guess, you know, you can layer underneath it additionally, if you really want the extra warmth, but it's going to do a pretty good job because it's got thin sled insulation, which is not as good of a warmth per weight insulation, but it's got pretty decent warmth per thickness. It's a little bit lower cost insulation. And you got that nice windproof laminate. You got the brush finish over the top. You can get it in some good late season camo patterns like Predator Fall Gray. Uh, the face mask works pretty decent. Uh, but again, because everything's fully integrated there, it does a really efficient job at keeping your body warm with uh, that, I guess, somewhat lighter amount of insulation that's actually there. The biggest challenge for me was actually just making it work with a saddle. So I originally tried it the way that Nate had done in his video. And what I found with mine, maybe this is just a discrepancy with how my body is sized versus the size of the IWAM versus his. But when I ran the bridge out through those pass-through pockets on the side of the IWAM, when I would come to full draw, it would tighten up the seam to where it was a little bit tight. Like it was almost like I would hit a, a bit of a wall right before I'd hit to the actual, you know, full draw wall of my bow. And it was because those pockets are located on the sides. And so when you have the bridge coming off your body, it's pulling those side pockets a little bit further forward. And when you're pulling that suit a little bit further forward, it just gave less space 
for that suit to operate before you actually run into the seam. And so what I ended up doing is there's two additional pockets that are front chest pockets. And I was like, I wonder what happens if I make those full pass through and then run the bridge out through the front of the saddle or the front of the I-bomb. And so I did that. I started with the chest pocket that was on my left side on left-handed shooter. So this would be on my draw arm side. I did a little bit of sewing and I basically totally butchered it, but it's functional and it's a zippered pocket. So when you open up the zipper, instead of just having that pocket, you know, go through and have a hard stop, you have that extra layer where you can actually pass right through and get to the inside of the suit there. And so I ran my saddle bridge out through that hole in my chest and then through the side pocket on the other side. And what that allowed me to do is when I'm actually hunting in the tree, and especially if I have my torso vertical or I'm kind of leaning up closer to the tree and I come to full draw, it just gives me a lot more actual space to be able to get that nice full draw position uh, to where it's not binding up at all. And I think it's totally feasible. The, the biggest challenge then becomes actually putting it on in the tree. And there's two different ways you can do it. One is you just leave that thing in a backpack, you climb the tree like normal, and then you can take it out of the pack when you're at hunting height, and then you can put it on over your head, kind of drape it down, and then while you have your lineman's belt on, feed the bridge through the holes, connect into your tether, drop the rest of the suit down, flip it, loosen your tether up, go into a full squat, close the zipper around your feet, and then you're, you're good to go. The other way to do it would be to climb the tree in what they call parka mode, which is where you have basically the top part of the suit in place. And there's a little waist strap uh, that you can cinch up and kind of hold everything there. It's a little bit harder to climb that way just because you have a lot of bulk around your waist. So it's harder to see things like where your feet are on, at on your sticks. It's harder to see things like your lineman's loops, uh, but you can still definitely climb that way. And then when you get to hunting height, you can go ahead and attach your bridge like normal. You don't have to feed anything through at hunting height. And then you can just drop the rest of the suit down and close it around your feet. So I think it's definitely a viable option, especially if a guy is a fan of those types of suits. If you want a good value, it's definitely a very good option to look into. Like if you have the opportunity to try one on and you're at least vaguely thinking about it, I would definitely go ahead and see if you can't try that one on, if, especially if you're hunting out of a tree stand, hunting on the ground, I think it's a really good option. If you're hunting out of a saddle, the, the thing that I would just keep in mind is that it's probably not optimal as is. I think ideally you have options where you can pass the bridge through front pockets and the front chest pockets work, but I think ideally they might even be like a couple inches lower for it to be you know, truly quote unquote optimized. It's also a bit of a hassle to try and close the bottom portion around your feet when you're up in the saddle. I mean, once you have everything good to go, it's very comfortable. It's very warm. It does what it's supposed to do. And I enjoy hunting out of it. Uh, it's just a little bit more of a hassle than some of those other systems and maybe not quite as versatile, but it is less expensive and a better value overall. So just kind of weigh those factors. The one additional suit that I have here in this fall of 2021 that I'm getting some use out of, but don't have quite as much experience with is the white squall jacket and pants from fleet, which is their, I guess, technical rainwear. There's multiple different kinds of rainwear in the hunting space. Some is 
more designed around whitetail hunting in a stationary position. It has a non-breathable waterproof layer and it usually has some kind of a quieter brushed surface finish. And they're going to be typically a little bit less expensive. When you look at more Western rainwear, that typically tends to fall into two categories. One is ultralight packable rainwear, which isn't going to be as durable, but it can be, I guess, you know, lighter weight because of its thinner construction. And the other would be more heavyweight, more durable rainwear that's designed to be worn while actually exerting. So a lot of times those will be using waterproof, but also quote unquote breathable membranes that will allow water vapor to pass through. If you're able to build a good, you know, I guess heat and moisture differential between the inside and the outside of the layer. And you oftentimes will have additional venting options in those. A lot of times they'll have pit zips built in and a lot of times the, the pants will have uh, full zips. And so the white squall is that type of garment. And I would say it's very similar actually to the intended use and function of like the first light seek rainwear. So they have a, a lighter option and they also have a heavier, more durable option, which is their seek. It's the more expensive one. And this one's, you know, kind of similar the white squall. I looked up the actual membrane that they use the, the fabric. It's a Torre fabric, which uh, you know, the other company that comes to mind that uses a lot of Torre fabrics is Kuyu. And the, the specific fabric, I guess, that's used in the white squall, I was able to find it in another place in the, like an Arcteryx rain suit, which is again, a really spendy rain suit. And the thought here is that this could be like, it's a very technical hard shell. It's got some built-in stretch. Uh, it's, you know, waterproof, breathable. It's got good technical features. It's comfortable. It hasn't really rained a whole lot. Uh, but basically the best I've been able to do at this point is, uh, you know, sit in a cold shower and just get into some weird, you know, positions and just make sure there's not any kind of weird wicking going on, that it's not getting through pockets, uh, making sure that it's, you know, the zippers are, are working fine. And I guess all indications are that it's going to be great. And I probably, I would say it's maybe liking it so far a little bit better than the, the first light seek. Um, but honestly, they're both really, really good options. So I will probably get rid of one of them at some point. I might, I'm kind of leaning towards keeping the fleet and getting rid of the, the first light just because I can't justify owning two pairs of these, you know, highly technical rain pieces. If you're just whitetail hunting, I think they're both overkill. Uh, you know, like you're going to love them. They're going to be great, but it's probably more than you realistically need. If you're not going to be trying to push through and do some exertion, uh, where you might need the extra venting and you might need the more breathable, uh, I guess, laminate. If you're just going to be having something that you want to be able to put on once you're up in a tree, you just maybe want it to be a little bit quieter, if anything, than something that has, I guess, a less expensive, more whitetail focused rainwear might be the way to go there. Uh, but for kind of a versatile all around piece that I can use here locally, I can take up to the boundary waters. I can take on, you know, fishing trips when it's going to be, you know, 40 degrees and raining and windy. Uh, it's definitely can, you know, I guess, fit a lot of gaps in that regard. And lastly, I'll just quickly touch on boots. The last couple of years, I've been pretty heavy on the actual leather boots instead of rubber boots. And obviously rubber boots are pretty popular in the whitetail space because number one, 
you know, a lot of us are hunting in marshy, swampy type areas where you need the waterproof of a rubber boot. Uh, but also a lot of guys are buying into the scent proof aspect of the rubber boots. So gum leaf is a company that I've seen pop up a few times on social media. The intrigue with them is that they're higher rubber content. They're basically made one boot at a time over in Europe and they're made the way that I guess rubber boots used to be made. So if you had like an older pair of like lacrosse or, you know, whatever, you know, pick your brand from 20, 30 years ago that would last a really long time because they had high rubber content. These are still made that way. Whereas a lot of the other, I guess, more inexpensive boots and like the, you know, say 50 to $200 range, let's say 50 to $125 range. They're less rubber and more additives. Uh, to help bring the cost down a little bit. So these boots are very expensive. I mean, they range on the lower end, I think from like $230, $250 for the basic models. And then they have other models that have, you know, neoprene linings and full zips on the sides that are waterproof zippers to help get your uh, leg in a little bit easier that are over $300. So I guess the justification there is that they should last uh, significantly longer than the less expensive pair of boots. Obviously they make a lot of sense to use in those wetter conditions, the marshes, the swamps, but I also wanted to just see how much I could push these things outside of their comfort zone because they are marketed towards a lot of times bird hunters that are walking through, you know, knee high, waist high grass that could also be soaked with dew or water. And they want the ability to stay dry, but also the ability to have some good abrasion resistance there. So the first time I wore these boots, I, I literally got them out of the box, tried them on. And the next trip we went on, uh, we did some scouting in Southeast Minnesota where we in, I guess one day put on about seven miles and 1100 feet of elevation gain up and down. And when you had just gently rolling Hills or you had flat ground, they did awesome. And actually the traction on the bottom is as good or better than a lot of the rubber boots I've tried. Definitely way better than the old Tingley boots that are EVA based, uh, that I've worn. The boots themselves also fit better around my calf and the pair that I have, which is the Viking techs, they have a gusset that you can cinch in the back to help keep sticks and debris from falling into the boots. They did pretty well on inclines. I would say arguably as good as the, the leather boots, but where they don't quite do as well as the leather lace up boots would be when you get onto those extended side hills or you get on the really steep portions. Uh, then something that's you know, a little bit stiffer and you can really cinch down tight to your ankles. That's when those really start to separate themselves. But for a lot of the more, I guess, general walking, uh, these boots actually did just fine. Uh, so I'm going to start using those more, I think, than I have historically used rubber boots because they're just more comfortable to walk in uh, than some of the ones I've had in the past. And the grip is really good. If I do get into some of those areas where I'm going to be either crossing a small creek or... I have just that little four inch of, you know, muck and water where it's kind of like a pseudo swamp or maybe there's a little bit of flooding. I think they'll do really well in all those types of scenarios. I had also this year purchased a pair of lace up hiking boots from Loa, uh, the Zephyr GTX high TF compared to the Keens that I had previously. These are a little bit higher top boots. They're insanely comfortable. I have you know, not how to really break them in at all. They're not as stiff as hiking boots could be. 
in fact, one of the reasons that I ordered these boots over other boots from either Zambolin or Crispy uh, were just like these seemed to check all the boxes that I wanted, uh, but had a little bit less stiff of a sole actually. On the, the Go Hunt website that I ordered these from, they have a rating scale that's like one, two, three, four, five on the stiffness side of things. And these, I believe, were a two out of five, which for a whitetail hunting boot, I'd prefer generally a little bit softer boot uh, than something I might want if I was going out west. Uh, and the reason for that is just that little bit softer sole. I feel like I'd get a little bit better control, a little bit better feel if I'm going through an area where, you know, maybe there are a lot of hidden sticks and things like that underneath the leaves. I feel like I can just get that little bit of extra tactile feel before I really put my full weight down and make a stick crack and make a whole bunch of noise. So that's why I went with those. They're comfortable. They fit great going up and down the hills. Tractions have been really good with them. So really at this point, the main thing to really just determine is how well they're going to hold up. Hopefully they hold up a little bit longer than my Keens did. Uh, because I think I only got like a year, a year and a half out of those before the uh, stitching started to come undone on those. And maybe those are still repairable, but I figured at the, uh, at the point they were at, it was better to just get a new pair of boots. So we'll probably end the episode there. Hope this was valuable or informational for guys that are either looking for uh, some of the specific items that I talked about or just, you know, layering advice in general. If you have any additional questions, feel free to reach out to me on social media. Instagram is usually the best place, although you guys can shoot me an email as well uh, with the submission form on the website, diy-sportsman.com. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.